morning, if I could draw your attention to Matthew chapter 2 for our study there. Matthew chapter 2. And I figured a fitting passage in light of the day after Christmas, as we're the day now after celebrating the birth of Christ. Just like to look at a passage of scripture here this morning, Matthew chapter 2. And I want to look in really at verses 1 through 11, but for sake of context, I want to read down as far as verse 16, but then we're just going to go back and kind of keep our study limited to verses 1 through 11, but I want to read the first 16 verses. And as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for the word of God as I read our scripture this morning? Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1, says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least of the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem, he said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with his mother Mary, and fell down and worshipped him him and when they had opened their treasures they presented to him gifts gold frankincense and myrrh then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to herod they departed for their own country another way now when they had departed behold an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream arise take the young child and his mother flee to egypt and stay there until i bring you word for herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother at night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time in which he had determined from the wise men. And Father, we just humbly ask as we open the word of God together here as your people, that Lord, as always, that by your spirit, you would speak to us through what you have already spoken in the word of God, by the spirit of God. So Lord, give us an ear to hear and a a heart that's receptive and ready to receive this morning, even the familiarity of this passage, Lord. We pray that you would, by your Spirit's anointing, put a freshness upon it and give us each our portion, that manna from heaven, that we might hear your voice speak to us today, Lord. So we ask, bless your word, and we pray this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
You know, I think it is incredibly important how we respond to things, primarily because how we respond to things always does make a difference. And after the birth of Jesus had transpired, and you take note, our first verse in our text this morning, now after Jesus was born, after the birth of Jesus had transpired, various types of people were responding to his life in different ways. In this passage particularly, we see at least three different responses. We see Herod, who we see wanted to eliminate his presence from his life. We see the religious leaders referred to as the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests, the religious leaders of that day. And we can see that their response is it seems they were indifferent towards the presence of Jesus, kind of apathetic and somewhat uninterested in the presence of Jesus. And then we see, of course, thirdly, the wise men, and we find them seeking his presence for their lives. And as we look at these three different responses in our passage this morning, I think in some ways they're kind of a fitting picture because they represent humanity today. They represent a lot of humanity, not only leading up to Christmas as well as on Christmas Day, but even after Christmas and throughout the remainder of the year. How are we living in response to the presence of Jesus in our own lives? Are we like the man Herod, who in some ways is almost wanting to shut out the presence of Jesus or eliminate the presence of Jesus from anything to do with impacting our life? Are we maybe a little bit indifferent in our current period and time in life, a little bit indifferent and apathetic and maybe a little cold-hearted towards the presence of Jesus? Or are we perhaps like the wise men, or maybe we should aspire to be a little bit more like the wise men who we'll see were diligently, diligently seeking the presence of Jesus in a desire to worship him? The first two responses indicate a very dangerous heart condition. The second or the third response, obviously, is the ideal that God intends for our hearts to be in towards his son. So look with me, if you would, back in verse one of our text this morning. It begins by telling us, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and we read those portions on Christmas Eve and worshipped and remembered the birth of Christ there in Bethlehem, we're told that in those days, the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So our text tells us here in verse 1 that during this time period after the birth of Christ, it says that Jesus, we're interestingly told in verse 1, was born in that time period, it says, of the days, verse 1, of Herod the king. Now you'll see the name Herod appear multiple times in your New Testament. There were different Herods. This particular Herod, Herod the king, in which Jesus was born during that time period, we know historically was Herod the Great. Now it's interesting that he would take that title to himself because this man, certainly just in his physical stature, would not exactly be someone who you could say, wow, that's a really great man. That's a, that's a, that's a, a, a massive man there. I mean, he, he made me look like a, a really tall guy. I could dunk over Herod the Great. Herod the Great, they say, was about four foot 10 or four foot 11. And no doubt, one of the reasons why he took the title Herod the Great was the result of the insecurities that existed in his life. Now, 
That being said, there were some really big and great things that Herod did do during his time period in the ancient world. I mean, this man was a great architect and a builder. We know that. And so he did have some really great accomplishments under his reign. He was famous for great architectural projects, built some huge and ornate buildings in the area there of Palestine during the time of his rulership. He built up Masada. He was the one who built and expanded even the temple of the Jews, this Herod the Great. But he also was great in a couple of other areas. He was also greatly arrogant. He was greatly cruel. And he was greatly insecure as an individual. In fact, it was said of Herod that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his family member. Because he wanted to live in cooperation to some degree with the Jewish people, he wouldn't touch pork, but he had no problem if he felt the least bit threatened by anyone that his throne could be taken away from him. And we know historically he put to death his wife and multiple children in his own family. In any way, if Herod the Great, who had power, had position, felt that something or someone could take control away from him or threatened his little throne, he would eliminate them. He would be cruel and he would do whatever he had to do to get rid of them as quickly and as easy as possible, even putting to death his own family members because he simply had a major insecurity issue and he had a great problem with being someone who loved control and loved it way too much. And so Herod became this personality in his days wanting to be in charge. And we'll see that this led to a lot of problematic things deep within his soul, ultimately shutting God out of his life because his desire to be so great and in control ultimately made him shut out the greatest one who should have been in control in his life, which was the Lord Jesus. And a great danger that caused in his life. Now, after Jesus' birth, we're told in our verses here, however, that other people, it says, came wanting to celebrate his life and presence. If you look at the end of verse 1, this is when we're introduced. It says that the wise men from the east, out in the Orient area, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because it says they wanted to worship him. Now, these wise men, or your translation may render that magi, these were men of great renown from the east, had great influence. They were highly esteemed as counselors, as advisors, those who had great wisdom and insight, those who were advisors from distant land. Now, we often assume that there were three wise men. And the reason we assume that, and I stress the word assume that, is because there were the three gifts given that we read about, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. But literally, there could have more likely been a huge entourage, maybe up to not three, but 300 that were traveling with them. Again, you have to keep in mind what it was like traveling in that ancient day. You weren't just hopping on a jet and flying across country or hopping on a jet and flying to another country. In that day, you were traveling with caravans on foot, and to make a journey from where they came, it is likely that they came potentially even from around the area of Babylon. There are those that think that these wise men who come could have been a sect from the days of Daniel, which means they would have come from around the area of Babylon. So now you're factoring in about a 900-ish mile journey when it says they came from the east. Now, in that day, understand, you had to travel with large caravans because you didn't stop at Chick-fil-A. 
you, you, of course, you can't do that on a Sunday, but you, you, you didn't stop places to get food. You, you didn't stay in hotels. You traveled and you camped. So you had to have people cook meals and, and be security details. And they have massive amounts of wealth, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So you would alone, just by necessity, have to have a large caravan to move across a large territory. And this would take a large period of time. I mean, literally, potentially months and months, if not up to eight, ten months, maybe almost a year or more, depending upon how fast they were coming as they were traveling with this large caravan. So the idea of three wise men, it's assumed because of three gifts, but it's, it's really probably not that accurate to what the scripture says. Now, we are going to destroy, sadly, many people's nativity scene this morning. But I'm going to give you some suggestions. You could just take the wise men and go put them on your neighbor's front lawn. And then keep the little manger scene in your living room, and that's probably a little bit more accurate. Because what the Bible tells to us, you know, we create this romantic idea, and the stores sell their little, and, but we have the wise men right there with Joseph and Mary all cozy in the manger scene. The reality is they were probably a lot further off at the time when Jesus was born as an infant. But when it tells us they came from the east, what I want you to take note of is they come from perhaps 900 miles away. This long, arduous journey, again, in rough conditions, it was not easy to travel. And they come this long distance to Jerusalem seeking the Christ child, seeking the coming ruler, the king of the Jews, because it says they wanted to, what does it say there? Verse two, they wanted to worship him. Now, I look at that and I would be dishonest to say there's not a little bit of serious conviction that comes. You want to talk about a degree of commitment? You want to talk about a degree of devotion and dedication to seek Jesus? To come and worship the Lord? Talk about putting in a little bit of an effort, right? We thought it was hard coming the day after Christmas. (laughs) I mean, consider what they did to come and seek Jesus and to worship him. Quite a sacrifice they were willing to make to seek out Jesus in worship. You know, I, I... I say that that it's degree convicting because I think it's very easy for us. We can be very quickly guilty of wanting convenient Christianity, wanting a worship life that is built into sort of drive-through religion. And, And if it's convenient, okay. But if it gets inconvenient, sorry, I'm an American. I I do drive-throughs. And and we can very easily kind of gravitate into this in our worship life and our Christianity as in every other area of our life where, again, it's too hard to. So therefore, and we begin to kind of you know, brush aside easily you know, devotion to the Lord or worship. Man, Jesus said this in Matthew 12. He said, the queen of the south, referring to the queen of the Sheba, will rise up in judgment with this generation to condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And he used that comparative picture there. She came from the ends of the earth to come here, a King Solomon. There's a king much greater and much wiser. And he says, and she came from the ends of the earth for a human king. How much more should we, the idea is for the king of kings. David himself said this, I don't want to offer burnt offering to the Lord that my God, he said, which cost me nothing. Again, that's the heart of a true worshiper. David, this man who had a, it says he was the man who had a heart after God, a man after God's own heart. He was after the heart of God. And David said, I want there to be some cost attached to my worship, to my devotion. 
And so David just reflects this very beautiful picture here. And these wise men, again, they don't even truly know Jesus in the degree we do. And they really stand out as, as those really diligently seeking Lord. And, and notice what they said. We're told here that they came saying, where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. So they were looking for Jesus and they were trying to discover who he was. So they came seeking Jesus and guess what they found? Jesus. And I love the, 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 the picture here of these uh, wise men because they're longing for more light spiritually. They said, you know, we saw his star in the east. We, we recognize the king of the Jews has been born. And so somehow they're connecting dots here. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they come and they say, we want to understand the ways of God more. We're seeking to have greater understanding, greater revelation, and they're asking and they're seeking, and what happens? They find. And this reminds me of exactly what Jesus says. It's a promise to all of us because it's applicable. I think someday, you know, all of us today in different places in our lives, people to some degree sense, whether they even recognize it or not, or even whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they sense a need in their soul. And what that need in our soul is, there's a vacuum-shaped void in every one of us for God. And so we kind of go through this process, and God takes us all through this journey where we begin to seek. We want to understand more. You know, if God's real, then, then I, I just I got to see if this is true. And, and then even throughout our whole journey as believers, hopefully we're still in that place where we're seeking more, and we're longing to understand more, and we want more and more light. And the wonderful thing is just like these wise men who come seeking and asking, and they find Jesus said, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. Whoever asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And whoever knocks, the door will be opened. Now we probably take that and we'll, well, so that means if I ask the Lord for the thing I didn't get for Christmas, I'll receive it. I just got to ask him for it. What if Jesus is just talking about asking for more understanding of God? Seeking the Lord to a greater degree, knocking on doors spiritually and seeing doors of ministry and doors of opportunity and doors to serve the Lord. And what if, what if that's what it's about? And how wonderful that Jesus promises to all of us that if we ask and seek, he will reward spiritual seeking. And it's interesting how these particular wise men were even being led. All they say in verse two is we saw his star in the east. And take notice of that. I have it circled in my Bible there. We saw, notice it says, his star. Somehow they connected this star to being a, an unusual and a divine star as they traveled. That was what guided them. Now it's possible that these wise men, as is common in the east and the orient, were studying astronomy and astrology and were into looking into the stars. You know, there is an interesting prophecy for you. You know, Bible students and note takers, we're going to jot in Numbers 24, verse 17. There's a reference there in Numbers 24, 17. It says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And a star shall come out of Jacob or Israel. And some believe that even as far back as Daniel's day, that Daniel started his own caste or sect, if you would, with his influence there in Babylon and that these are further descendants down the road who were always studying and paying attention and looking somehow for this unique supernatural star that would be a guiding star for the Messiah, for the Christ. That a star would arise in Israel when the king 
would be born, when this Savior would come to pass, for his star would light the way. Now, there are those who try and give natural explanations to what happened here. They talk about when certain planets line up or supernovas. I just tend to think, because I'm not real smart, that the, the one who made the stars can give Jesus his own star. I just, just to me, it's just real simple. That was just his star. You know, today we pay people money to name stars. What, what a huckster that is. Hey, pay me money. You can name a star for your girlfriend. You know, seven other guys just did the same thing before you. This was Jesus' star. It was just God said, you know what? He's a star. He deserves his own star. That's my son. And so God puts this supernatural star there. But the bottom line is this. At the end of the day, what's God doing? Whatever worked to draw them to his son. If they were into the stars, studying the stars, the bottom line is at the end of the day, they were met by God right where they were at, these wise men. And God knew their heart was slightly inclined. So God was willing to use whatever it took for them to ultimately come to know the Lord. And I love this because it just shows the love of God, the, you know, the wisdom of God, even, the, you know, we might fairly say the creative methods of God, that God will use whatever it takes in this earthly journey to get people to the place where he wants them to be, which is to know his son in a personal way. And God is wonderful in regards to the ways that he meets people right where they're at. He knows right where people are in their life. He knows what will work. And he connects with people where they're at to ultimately bring them to a connection to his son because that's his main goal. Well, verse 3 goes on to tell us that when Herod the king heard about these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests, as says verse 4, and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, he asked the religious leaders, where is this Christ to be born? So he wants to know, hey, these men came here. They're looking for the Christ child, the Messiah, this king of the Jews, this savior, they say, is promised to come. And he says, you guys are the religious leaders. So he's saying, tell me, tell me where he's at. Tell me where he would be. Now, it tells us in verse 3 here and 4 that it caused Herod to be troubled. It troubled Herod. And again, this goes back to what I was referring to earlier. It troubled him because he heard king. Did you just say you're looking for a king? Did you forget I'm Herod the Great? Are you talking about somebody else is going to take over my throne and not me? And so all of a sudden, this begins to trouble Herod. And you can see in the reading of what we read together at the start of our study this morning, again, all the indications of this murderous insecurity within him. So he's very troubled because what he realizes, I don't like the idea of somebody taking control away from me. And that was bothersome to him because he had an authority trip. And he's someone who enjoyed being in control and controlling others. And he liked being on the throne, both of his own life and really, for that matter, on the throne of other people's lives. And so because of this, he's struggling. And today, look, folks, many people are troubled and uncomfortable when it comes to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the reason Jesus troubles them is because of the fact that Jesus poses a threat to their lifestyle. They like being on the throne. They like being in control. And being able to do what they want with their own life. And so the reality of Jesus' presence to them, almost like Herod here, it threatens their insecurities as a human being because they want to be on the throne of their heart. 
And they don't like the idea of Jesus taking over control of their life because he may challenge a wrong way they're living or sin or error. They want to be on the throne and it poses a threat to them. And so because of that, many like Herod then will try and do everything they can to to stay away and to dismiss Jesus and to get away from Jesus because of that tension of who's going to be on the throne. And Herod does, however, what seems proper and what you would expect him to do. You can see he's a wise person because what does he do in verse 4? He goes to the chief priests and the scribes or the religious leaders and he says, look, I'm a king. You guys are religious leaders. You have scrolls of the scriptures. So he says, I'm asking you in the religious community, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Tell me where he's to be born at. He figured they would know they're the religious leaders. Verse five tells us, so they said to him, seems rather quickly. Now, I don't know if they went and scrambled for their scrolls or if they knew. Seems to me this was like they were they pretty were on spot. They knew right away. Verse five, they said to him, not let us get back to you, but they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. They knew it was in the prophetic books. They quote Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So notice here, they quote Micah chapter 5. These religious leaders in that day they knew all the right facts spiritually. I mean, they could most of us do that. They rambled right off Micah chapter five. They knew right away the exact location, the Christ child, the savior of the world, the promised Messiah would be born because they studied, they knew religious things, they knew spiritual facts. They even knew their Bibles to a degree. Yet the the tragedy is, They say he's in Bethlehem. Do you know how far Bethlehem is from where they're standing right now? About five miles away. Now, the wise men just came 900 miles with limited spiritual information seeking Jesus. The religious leaders of the day know that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. He's five miles away and they don't even bother going to check it out. They don't even go seek Jesus for themselves. They don't even go explore if these testimonies of the Savior, the King being born, why aren't they excited to go themselves? To me, there's nothing other than an indication that though they had a bunch of head knowledge of spiritual facts, they had no heart connection to God. Oh, they knew all the facts. They could quote the Bible verses even. They knew all the right information spiritually, as many do, that though they were religious, they were indifferent spiritually. Oh, did I say that? They were religious, but they were indifferent spiritually. It had it all here, but that 18-inch journey from the head to the heart had not happened. They were content with the religious routine, but they were not open to a genuine experience with God. And boy, that is something that can be such a human mistake. And it represents some today who become indifferent towards Jesus. The word indifferent simply means a lack of enthusiasm, interest, or concern for something. And that is how some people feel about the Lord Jesus. There's just a lack of enthusiasm towards him. Oh, respectful, yeah, I mean, but a a real lack of enthusiasm. 
they can tell you things about Jesus, but there's little interest in Jesus. And, you know, I have to ask, because it's good inventory for all of us, could that perhaps describe maybe where your heart is this morning? Or maybe where your heart's gravitated towards this morning? Where you've become somewhat indifferent towards the presence of the Lord, and though you may have all the right answers, maybe your heart's gravitated to this unhealthy condition. You know, Jesus, later in the same book, Matthew chapter 13, is going to say, the hearts of this people have grown dull, like a dull knife that used to be sharp. He said, the hearts of this people have grown dull. Revelation 3, Jesus there rebukes the church of Laodicea because he says they had become lukewarm. And Jesus said, I wish you were burning hot or just freezing cold, but this lukewarm thing, he says, it makes me nauseous. It makes me nauseous. Because, I mean, when you're talking about Jesus, only one, you might as well just hate him with all your hatred or love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And so Jesus said, when our hearts become lukewarm as Christians or even as a church, that's nauseating to him because of how great he is. Matthew 24, Jesus said this, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. So again, Jesus says our hearts can grow dull. As Christians, as a church, we can grow lukewarm spiritually. And that sometimes as Christians, we have to be careful. He says, especially as the last days come, he says the love of many, not all. So we don't have to be included in it, but he says the love of many, one mark of the last days will be. He says, you'll watch, and the word love there is agape. He's not talking about worldly love. He's talking about biblical Christian spiritual love, the agape love of God, which only exists, to my knowledge, in the hearts of God's people. And he says, the love of many in the house of God, in the, in the community of God, it'll just begin to grow cold. That love that we once had for the Lord and love we had for the world and people around us, it just starts to cool off because we become perhaps so, you know, maybe just inundated with other things or maybe even just so frustrated and jaded in the last days that instead of having a heart of love, we just are kind of like loathing being in the world anymore. And so Jesus says, be careful of this indifference. The religious leaders, it seems, were so indifferent. They knew right where Jesus was, the ruler, the shepherd, but they didn't go to see him. Verse seven goes on to tell us, and then Herod, when he had secretly called back the wise men, he determined from them what time the star that they had been following had appeared to them. And verse eight says, he then sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him. Boy, what a rotten hypocrite here. I mean, we know from the whole chapter that what Herod is doing here is completely deceptive. We know that as we read through, that's why I read through the entirety of the portion I did. The star now reappears and starts to head towards the location of, of Jerusalem. And so Herod at this point says, look, tell me where, where that star was again. And he's keeping it all secretive. And you always know someone's heart is not in a good condition. Verse seven, you can circle that word secretly. The things of God always happen in the light. You always know someone's heart or your heart is not in the right condition when you're doing things secretly. When things have to be done secretly and not in the light, that's a real good indication things aren't headed in the right direction. So he calls them secretly, comes to this little play, tell, tell me where, and how's that work out? And tell me when you find him, I want to come worship him. And here Herod, in this condition here, we know he doesn't want to worship him, he wants to eliminate him, right? right. 
He wants to murder him and get rid of him. And we're going to see later in the, in the verses, well, we're going to look at it together, but we already read later in the verses that he's going to put out a, a murderous plot to kill all kids in the whole community and area, two years old and under, to try and exterminate any possible potential of this new king taking over his throne. And today, look, as I look at Herod, he represents, as sad as it is to say, some of what still exists in our world today in regards to the presence of our Lord Jesus. There's nothing new under the sun. Herod wanted to do everything he could to eliminate the presence and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people, sadly, in this world today where an anti-Christian spirit is so strongly at work in them in every way, all they can do, whether they're conscious of it or not, is they're just trying to get rid of the presence of Jesus. They're trying to shut out the light and keep everything to do with Jesus and Christians and Christianity shut out as much as possible. And they may even, like Herod, pretend spiritually, but it's all just an under guise thing where they're looking to really just do anything they can to shut out the light of the Lord because of such hatred they feel in their heart towards him. Well, verse 9 tells us that when they then heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So the same stars guiding them. And it says, till it came and then it stood over where the young child was, right over the house. It was shining down in some way upon it, locating the house for the young child, Jesus. Verse 10 says, and when, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So they're enthusiastic there, I mean, imagine you took that journey, right? And then all of a sudden now that star shines on not only the city, but now the exact housing location. And they are excited to get there and they go over enthusiastically in verse 11. This is what they've been waiting for. It says when they had come into the, notice circle this word, house, not stable, not cave, not manger scene. They're now where Jesus is in a house. And they saw not an infant, but a young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So notice again the timetable of these events. It's not the same as our manger scene that we have given to us in Luke's gospel. This is perhaps at this point, maybe upward, some believe, to a year to two years after Jesus was born. That could make sense because the text alone says that Herod says, go out and kill every male child. How old? Two and under. So he, I'm sure he may be bumped up a little, but he's trying to take into account about when was he born? And he says, anybody two and younger that's a male child, put them to death just to be safe. As well as this long, arduous journey of the wise men coming. So again, I know the nativity scenes breaking down a little bit here, but again, we, we understand that the word of God tells us things for particular reasons, because as they get to this point now, this is the culmination of their journey. And I want you to notice with me here in verse 11, the threefold response of these wise men who aren't indifferent to Jesus. They're not trying to eliminate the presence of Jesus. These wise men are enthusiastic about the Lord. They have a heart of passion. Notice the threefold response, even in our verse here, verse 11. The first thing that is evident, verse 11, is they have a heart that was full of submission towards the Lord. What does it say in verse 11? Look at it there in the text. It says, verse 11, when they saw the young child, Jesus, not a you know, glorious king on a throne, but they knew who he was. It says, verse 11, it says, they fell down before him. 
The idea is they fell down to pay homage before him as a king. Seeing him as a king. The idea is personally humbling themselves before absolute authority in their presence. They humble themselves in submission before Jesus. Revelation 1 tells us that when John sees the glorified Christ, it says that he fell down on his face before him. When we read in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, what's happening around the throne of God when we don't have these bodies of flesh that are weak and sinful and at times selfish and and, and proud, inhibiting us in any way anymore around the throne of God, his, his people are there, and it says they continually, what, they keep falling down again and again for all of eternity. They fall down, they cast their crowns, The idea is they are so overwhelmed with the greatness of Jesus, they keep falling down and bowing the knee towards him in submission. Philippians 2 tells us this, that God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee, listen, should bow of those in heaven and those on earth, and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that every knee should bow, the Bible says. That when we realize who Jesus is as King of kings and Lord of lords, that there should be something within us that says, I should bow before such a king. I should bend the knee of my pride or anything within me and humble myself in the presence of such an awesome king and ruler, his absolute authority, and want to pay allegiance to him as an awesome ruler. I mean, think about the reality. You know, we, we, we do things to honor people on a human level, right? If you, you find yourself in a courtroom for whatever purpose, it, it, when the judge walks in, what happens? Everyone stands, all rise. The idea is just paying homage and respect. I mean, how much more, right? Should we be bending the knee? in submission towards our Lord Jesus. Lord, whatever you want, control over my life, rulership. Hey, this morning, is there any area of your life, as you close a year and head into a new year, is there any area of your life that honestly may not be submitted to Jesus right now? That maybe you might want to reconsider. Lord, hard as it may be, this area too, I'm going to submit it to you. I'm just going to submit and surrender this to you. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Secondly, notice as well, we can tell that there's not only here this submission, but there's also a great degree, you could say, of adoration in verse 11, because it says they fell down and then they did what? Worshipped him. They begin to give worship and honor. And the word worship in its root form just means to express worth. That's the idea of worship, to express worth. Seeing him for who he is, they're compelled to express his worthiness. It tells us again, around the throne of God in heaven, Revelation chapter 4, it says they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns down before him saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You're worthy of it, Lord. The idea is you are deserving of this honor. You are worthy and deserving of, of honor and glory because of your importance. You know, I asked you this morning, do we really sometimes take into consideration the degree of worth that Jesus really has? How deserving he really is. 
You know, let me make this morning a, a clarification from this pulpit from something from a, a few weeks ago. Though I know it was intended to be stated as a complimentary thing in an edifying way, um, Rick had mentioned the Sunday morning that I came here uh, after I got out of the hospital. I was in the hospital for three days uh, because of a major back episode I had and was on some IV medicine for a few days and came wandering in here Friday morning or Friday afternoon, excuse me, I got out of the hospital. And that Sunday, obviously, I wasn't in the right condition to teach and I was under medicine you would have wanted me to teach. I would really said some heretical things. But Rick graciously said, as I stumbled my way in with a cane and plopped my rear end in the back of the sanctuary there to be here, he said, you know, I wish he was home, but he's a, he's a true shepherd, so he's with his sheep. And I want to correct that. Because though in a sense that's true in a secondary sense, the reason I was here that Sunday morning wasn't because I was a shepherd and I wanted to be with my sheep, as much as I do love you all. The reason I was here that morning is because I'm a Christian. And I love Jesus. And though my own wife and daughter said to me, Dad, you know, I mean, we have YouTube now. I mean, you, you're not going to teach this morning anyway. You can just, you can just, what are you, gonna, what are you doing? We got to help you get dressed. It's, I'm a Christian. And if there is not a reason I can't be there, if I can, he is worthy of my worship. He is worthy of my honor and my glory. He changed my eternal destiny. He's given me the life that I have and all the blessings that have gone along with it as a simple result of him becoming involved and taking control of my life. So I want to clarify the reason I was here. Let me take off my pastor cap. The reason I was here this morning that morning was because I'm a Christian and I wanted to worship Jesus. Do I remember anything Kevin said? No, because I was on drugs. <laughs> I was. There's another confession. I'm off of them now. <laughs> Somebody going, still seems like he's on in the past. No. But again, why? Because he's worthy. That's why these wise men came, because he's worthy of our worship. And notice, what do they do finally? It says they present to Jesus these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The best of what they had, great wealth. I mean, these were expensive gifts. They travel this long distance to bring these valuable, costly gifts to worship Jesus and to, to just present these gifts to him, to honor him. And again, I look at this and, and I think to myself, what a, what a gracious thing. I mean, how wonderful and generous, right? I mean, we give people generous gifts. Maybe Christmas time, we give people generous gifts. Why? Because we love them so much. And we do that for human beings. How much more should we give our best to Jesus? Present our treasures unto him? You know, that's you know, maybe a little bit convicting for some. You know, maybe if you kind of put on the scale your Christmas budget versus your Christian budget. Ouch. But they give to Jesus their best. Jesus, you're worthy of our best. And here they come with gold and frankincense and myrrh. And look, there are many ways we can give to Jesus, but there's no more valuable way, folks, that any of us can give to Jesus than to give him the treasure of your own heart. It's the most valuable thing you've got, to present yourself to the Lord. Romans 12 says it this way, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, after he talked about 11 chapters of the salvation experience, he says, by the mercies of God, I beg you, present your bodies, 
a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Isn't it interesting? This is your reasonable offering unto the Lord. Give him yourself. More than your gold, your silver. He created gold and silver. He can always find gold and silver. But the hard part is he's given us a free will. So it's a huge cost to present your life to the Lord and to say, Lord, here is my life. I'm putting it on the altar. It's not mine, it's yours. And he says, this is the reasonable response of worship, presenting ourselves to the Lord. Now, these three gifts that Jesus does receive here are not only valuable and costly, but they're also very unique considering who he was and what he came to do. They gave him gold. Gold in that day was the medal of kings. Who was Jesus? King of kings and Lord of lords. He was just a baby, but he was king of kings and Lord of lords from heaven's throne. It says they gave to him as well frankincense. Frankincense was used by the priests in their ministry in the Old Testament. And who was Jesus going to grow up to be? Our great high priest as the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who helps us in our spiritual life as a priestly mediator so that we can have relationship with God and experience the help that we need. So Jesus, pictured as a king, pictured as a priest, and then thirdly, it says they also gave to him myrrh, and myrrh was a burial ointment to embalm the dead. In fact, you had to crush myrrh to get its aromatic fragrance to come out. You had to actually crush it and break it up. But it was a burial anointing oil And how interesting, because it spoke of what Jesus came to do the first time when he came to earth. Jesus was born to die. Unlike every other person, we're all born and we spend our whole time here trying to live, right? And many are doing everything they can to try and live. I gotta live, gotta live, I gotta stay alive, I gotta live. Jesus came to be born to die. His, his reason for coming was to ultimately die, to do the will of God, and the culmination of that for him was to die for God's purposes, to glorify God and to die in a way that brought glory to God and salvation to our souls. You know, what a wonderfully familiar passage of Scripture, but just to ask ourselves today, like Herod, have we been doing something to try and eliminate the presence and light of Jesus from our life because maybe we're not living the way we're supposed to? Not good. Has our heart perhaps become a little bit indifferent to Jesus? Maybe we've lost zeal or enthusiasm and we're a little bit kind of indifferent spiritually. Not good. The wise men show us the the right ideal, diligent, passion, willing to do whatever it takes to honor Jesus for who he is. You know, may the Lord change our hearts if they've become hard, cold, or indifferent. Only he can change our hearts by his spirit. And may the Lord, by the grace of God in this year ahead, help us to always remember wise men and women still seek him. Let's stand together.